0: You're listening to HSBC Talks Business. Learn how businesses like yours are leveraging a wide range of banking solutions to Mm -hmm.
1: maximize their success, and how HSBC is helping them.
0: Thank you for listening. Welcome to Inspiring Progressive Business, a podcast series for SMEs, join us for insights from inspirational business leaders, entrepreneurs
1: and experts on key topics of importance to your business.
0: Hello everyone and welcome. My name is Dan Roberts and I'm the Global Head of Business Banking here at HSBC. In my role, I'm lucky enough to help 1.3 million small and medium-sized business customers around the world on their growth journey. One of the areas where we're seeing a huge amount of activity at the moment is in the food industry, and in particular, within that alternative protein. So somebody who knows more about these exciting innovations than probably anyone else is my guest today, Sonali Figuerez. So Sonali, welcome.
1: Hi, so nice to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us. So Sonali is Chief Exec and Editor-in-Chief of Green Queen Media which if you haven't heard of it, it's the go-to news media for the latest on developments and investments in alternative protein, but also on a wider sustainability theme. I think you're also the founder and CEO of some other businesses as well, Eco Warehouse. You might get to talk a little bit about that later. That's a global sourcing platform and the founder and CEO of another business called uh, SourceGreenPackaging.com. So you're evidently a serial entrepreneur in your own right, Nali. Thank you very much for joining and can't wait to get into this conversation.
1: Absolutely. So excited to be here. I'm trying to be a serial entrepreneur. There's so many problems to solve to create, you know, a greener, more sustainable world.
0: Maybe just tell us a little bit about you and your background and how you ended up. Are you the green queen, I should ask, or, uh, or is that just the name of the company?
1: Um, a little bit of both. <laughs> I really started because of actual health issues. So it's a kind of a typical story in the health space and sometimes in the sustainability space, but the, the essence is that I had health issues and I couldn't find answers to my health issues in the kind of doctor and medical community, just because a lot of the issues I have are just chronic and they don't have a, you know, a magic pill that I could take to fix them. And you know, I've always been someone who likes to find my own answers and do my own research. And around the time when Googling became something one could do, I started to really delve into how I could manage a lot of my symptoms. And that's really what led me down the sustainability rabbit hole.
0: So the business came after the personal need did it. Interesting.
1: Right. So I realized that our food system was broken. I realized that not once had I been told about our broken food system and the accompanying global health epidemics and problems that were related by doctors. And I really, really had this kind of premonition that, If everyone eventually had this information in front of them, then our entire consumer approach and behavior would change. And of course, that is what has happened. And so I felt the need to create businesses and information platforms to serve that kind of trend, if you will.
0: So I'm sure we'll bring in some of the other elements of broader sustainability in food industry later on, perhaps. But we're going to dive into alternative protein, first of all. So can you just help out for the uninitiated amongst us? Just help me understand what exactly is alternative protein? How would you define it?
1: Absolutely. So alternative proteins are essentially a term that has really only gained ground in the last three or four years. It's part of a broader explosion in food that we could call food tech. And it's essentially the idea that the way that we grow food today is broken because it has massive environmental, ethical, and health challenges and issues. And we have a growing planet, soon to reach possibly 9 billion and eventually 10 billion people by 2050, of which you know 5 billion of those will actually be in Asia, where I'm sitting here. And we need to feed. All these people. And one of the main things we need to do is make sure that they have access to affordable and nutritious and sustainable protein. So a lot of these alternative protein companies were born out of this mission to find new ways to create the protein that we love, which today is very much industrially produced animal protein.
0: Can you give some examples? I mean, will people have come across the products or heard of them? Are they, you know, Just give us the audience some examples of some of the emerging products that are coming out in this space then?
1: Absolutely. So I think it's fair to say that probably some of the biggest names in the world are two little companies called Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat. Beyond Meat, <laughs> in fact, made history in 2019 because they went public on the U.S. stock market where they were the first plant-based meat company to do so. But today in the last, I would say three to four years, we can now say there are over a thousand companies that are in this space. And alternative protein is not just plant-based meat products and plant-based seafood and plant-based cheese and plant-based dairy. There are also other verticals that are highly dependent on technology, including precision fermentation, biomass fermentation, and cellular agriculture. And probably the most famous cellular agriculture company would be Eat Just because they were the first company in the world to get regulatory approval to sell their cultivated chicken, which happened in Singapore. Currently the only place in the world that you can pay to taste cultivated meat
0: that was approved. One of the things that strikes me about this topic is, it seems that a lot of the innovation is coming from startups and small companies and the innovation's happening, as you say, and they're coming out of SMEs and small businesses, largely, not entirely, Whereas maybe five, 10 years ago, it would have been a government-led problem or it had been coming out of the R&D labs of some of the big companies. Is my impression right? I mean, is this something that's quite grassroots and is happening in the sort of smaller companies or is actually, is it a mix of small company, big company, governmental change? Where's the action really coming from?
1: No, that's a fantastic observation and it is a correct observation. So if you think about food in the last couple of decades, food is a big company proposition, right? It's R&D, it's big marketing budgets, it's distribution and supply chains that are global in span. It's not really a small business proposition in the same way, other than maybe a mom and pop restaurant type thing, right? Or a cafe or a small brand of, of sauce that then gets bought by big food. But what you see in this space is it is all young companies, startups, that are saying, hey, big food has gotten too comfortable, has not seen the climate crisis looming. It has allowed food to become such a large carbon footprint and has sort of rested on its laurels and only focused on making a very efficient supply chain. And so you have all these mission-driven, small company founders that are saying, we're gonna solve this. We're gonna go up against big food, of course, What's ended up happening now is that big food is also getting involved in the sector and kind of investing in some of these disruptive startups and technologies because they've realized that the writing's on the wall for the food system as it is today. And that consumers in 10, 20 years are just not going to accept the same products. The value proposition has got to change. But we're in that flux. We're in that transition. The mass consumer today is still accepting Big foods offering, but you've got these fringes that are coming up and saying, we don't want this anymore.
0: I think that it would be fair to say, alternative protein is still a very, very small proportion of the whole protein market. So it's very small. It's very early days, very small, Dep- fast, super fast growing.
1: Yep. Yeah, depending on the vertical and depending on the geography, we're talking about less than five or 1%. It's very small. The potential right. is, for scale is still very much in the future but we're seeing some really encouraging drivers and results. And there is a point I'd like to make that I find is often missing from a lot of the debate and discussion around alternative proteins. So let me just illustrate it a little. If every mainland Chinese citizen started to eat as much beef as the average American citizen eats, we would need six to seven planets. The point of the figure I shared is that It's not an either or proposition. We have a growing population, a population that is becoming wealthier with rising incomes. When people's incomes rise, they want more protein. They want better food, right? More nutritious food. Why do we prize meat as having such status? It's because it's incredibly nutritious right, per pound or per kilo. And so these curves are already in action in Asia and in Africa and in Latin America. Protein consumption is on the up. And so we simply cannot feed that demand. We cannot meet that demand today with industrial livestock agriculture as it is. So we need alternatives anyway.
0: So you gave a couple of examples early on. Just tell us a little bit about the sorts of businesses you're starting to see emerge and you know, what angles are they looking at, or what is it they're trying to bring to the solution?
1: Well, I think what's interesting is that you're starting to see localized or regionalized businesses. So, for example, there's an Indonesian company called Green Rebel. And what they're doing is they're really trying to utilize a lot of local ingredients and crops so they're able to really make use of a supply chain that is local and can be protected and then they're creating products to appeal to a southeast asian palate for example satays or rendan right because obviously not everybody in the world eats burgers or sausages right if we're going to help consumers change their habits we're going to need to localize the offerings And really make sure that we're creating products and solutions that are geared to how people cook or eat in that particular city or country. And I think that's what's most exciting. So that's why you're seeing a ton of cheese startups in Europe, because Europeans eat a lot of cheese. You know, you're seeing a lot of the meat startups tend to be in the U.S., because there's so much beef consumed, right? Chicken is more across the world. And then for example, seafood, I think is really exciting right here in Asia. There's so many different alternative seafood companies because we eat more seafood in Asia than anywhere else in the world.
0: I'd like to just talk about the sort of investment side. So- There's a lot of VC type money going into this industry at the moment. What's driving that? What's the investment thesis that's underlying the money kind of coming in and supporting some of these small businesses, particularly as we talked about earlier, like traditionally this was a scale, big food problem. And yet there's very smart VC money going in at scale now into some of these startups. So what's behind that, do you think?
1: Well, one of the simple reasons is food is sexy. And I think for VCs, there's something just very tangible, exciting, delicious about being able to kind of taste your investment and really kind of explain it to your family, right? And then there's this kind of understanding that there is actually quite a bit of technology that needs VC investment because at the heart of it, right, VC really grew out of biotech and then went into software. Alternative protein still allows you to have a thesis that is quite similar to a software thesis, which is that if the founders are able to really kind of harness a technology and build IP around it, this is going to be extremely valuable. With the idea that there is either an IPO down the road or there's an acquisition by big food. And I think a lot of the VCs can see that the big food companies are not gonna be able to do all this innovation in-house. They're going to buy their way to innovation in many cases. And so that makes it a very attractive VC proposition. And I think there are also plenty of VCs who believe in the impact and the the ESG mission. And it's hard to argue with the idea that food is never gonna go out of dial or trend. We need to feed people. And if you're a numbers person and you're looking at the curves of protein demand and population growth and rising social and economic mobility, it's hard not to understand that we're going to need more protein.
0: Do you see the big food coming back as you say, buying some of these companies and sort of consolidation again, or multiple small businesses will kind of club together? Again, back to this point of scale, I'm just interested in your thoughts on how that's likely to play out as the sort of winning products and winning concepts really start to achieve real scale.
1: Well, I wouldn't presume to be able to really fully predict the future. And this is a discussion that in our investor chat groups we have all the time. I'm more of an advisor and a venture partner to the funds. I'm certainly not running the funds. I don't want to take credit in the wrong way, but when I'm in these chats and I listen to investors, I think it depends on the vertical, right? So what's going to happen in cellular agriculture is quite different than what's going to happen in plant-based meats. And it's really going to be dependent on the IP of the companies. So really, really strong IP that is disruptive. I think there is a path to acquisition by a major food company, and you already see that, right? So Tyson Foods was an early investor in Beyond Meat, for example, right? There's many more examples of this. I think what's really interesting is that a lot of the big meat companies have redefined themselves as not meat companies, but protein companies. So that's really opening the door for them. They're gonna serve the market with protein. They're gonna get less attached to where that protein comes from.
0: So let's talk about supply chain then. So maybe start with in the sort of retail or restaurant end, how is their business model? What are they seeing in terms of consumer change? And how are they sort of beginning to demand driven now? And how are they having to change the way they think about their own businesses to start to accommodate some of these shifting patterns from their point of view? Is it as simple as a substitute product or is it more going on than that?
1: I think a few years ago, it was really the companies, right? Like. David Young of OmniFoods or Pat Brown of Impossible, right? Going to restaurants and saying, hey, you know, we've created an alternative. This is how a consumer can change the world with a bite. You need to kind of invest in this. And I would say probably most restauranters, chefs and chains were a bit hesitant, right? And then you have the noise that people, companies like Impossible made, where they were teaming up with the Momofuku, world famous Dave Chang, you know, and really getting headlines in major newspapers around the world. And I think that did two things. It made FMV operators go, whoa, this is interesting. This gets you press, this gets you attention. This is something people are talking about. And two, it made them wonder, well, hold on, are we missing out on customers because we're not giving them an option? And I think that there was this kind of latent global population of flexitarians and vegans and vegetarians that were just not getting their needs met. And suddenly there were these products that could just be substituted one for one on a menu, which was easy enough for kitchens, because I think that's what you have to really think about. What Impossible did is they said, our patty can be substituted one for one. You can put it in your kitchen you can prepare it the same way you would a beef patty. There's no difference. You can cook it the same way. And that is where it's different. You have to really grasp the significance of what some of these early companies did or OmniPork saying to a dumpling maker, just substitute your pork meat with OmniPork one for one, and you can make the same dumpling. So that is groundbreaking.
0: So there's also potential for some real innovation in cuisine and stuff with people creating whole new kind of types of food or being able to do things with an alternative protein that they would never have been able to do with a more traditional animal-based protein.
1: That's true. But I I also think that is down to companies like Impossible who really pioneered the restaurant first approach so that the first time that a consumer would connect with their product, it would be in the hands of one of the world's best chefs. And then it percolates down to selling it retail, right? Like most of these companies did not sell retail first. They went yeah. restaurant first. And then yeah. once there was awareness and education around how to prepare the product and what the product was, then we started seeing it on supermarket shelves.
0: And what about other points in the supply chain? I mean, how is the change in the industry impacting on distribution or upstream? What are the sort of key things you're seeing change?
1: The key thing I'm seeing is that we just don't have enough manufacturing capacity. And that's going to really impact. We have too many brands, right? And not enough factories to create the product for the brands. Because a lot of the brands, they don't have their own factory. They're using co-packers, co-manufacturers. And there's just not enough.
0: Is that where the VC money is going? Is it developing manufacturing capacity or not so much? Not enough.
1: I would say not enough VC money is going to that. You're seeing a lot more VC money going into Production units for cellular agriculture and precision fermentation, right? Mm -hmm. So bioreactor companies, scaffolding companies, all of that. But in plant based, I'm not seeing as much investment as I thought I would into actual manufacturing. And that goes back to that if you're a small company and you haven't sorted out manufacturing with agreements with factories for long term or your own factories, you're going to struggle to get from a maybe a $10 million company revenue to $100 million revenue, right?
0: I suppose it's the, forgive me audience, the alternative chicken or alternative egg problem, isn't it? Which came first, which is if you're setting up a business, did you spend the money on building a big manufacturing asset You know, in advance of the scale, that's a very, very high risk strategy. But equally, if you don't have the manufacturing capacity, you may not scale in the first place. So how do you unpick that? Right.
1: But I think the problem is a lot of the brands are being created by founders who are not producers and are hoping to rely on co-manufacturing or co-production. But a lot of the money is going into the brands rather than going into the co-production. And it's also because we're not seeing as many founders coming and saying, we're going to be the factory for the other brands. And I'll be honest with you, one of the reasons is because it's, it's not as cool, right? It's harder to build a whole kind of story around we're just a factory for other brands. But the reality of the situation is we need those factories. So you're starting yeah, but- to see more like SG Protein in Singapore, and there's B-Veg Foods in India, you're starting to see more.
0: I guess we've talked about manufacturing capacities being one of the sort of key challenges. What other challenges would you be saying are sort of facing the alternative protein industry over the next, I don't know, three to five year horizon?
1: My concern, and obviously I'm in the media, so I spend a lot of time with you know the public perception side. My concern is twofold. I think that I worry what happens once the kind of early adopter, early stage of the romance is over. And two, I worry about price not being low enough because very frankly, at the end of the day, most consumers are going to, all things being equal, they're going to go for price and then taste. And I think that the sector has a lot of hype, which is great, but we really need to do more work around educating consumers and really kind of finding products that could appeal to the mass, not just the early adopters or the extreme vegans or the uber climate conscious, right? Because At the end of the day, the whole point of this is to also have an impact on emissions. Yeah, And we're only going to do that if we can convince hundreds of millions, dare I say billions, to really change what's on their plate. And I think we need to do more to get the buy-in of those customers around perception and around price.
0: And for our audience, which would mostly be small and medium-sized businesses, what can an individual business do to help create those conditions or is it something that's so bit, you know, this whole adoption is, as you say, it's in the billions of people, it's a sort of staggeringly big challenge ahead of us. So is it going to come from the grassroots? Or will it come ultimately from government or other places? Or where do you see who's going to create the environment that will drive the adoption?
1: So I think you've got Generation Z, that is really going to be a big driver. Generation Z, in my view, is the flattest generation in the world. So in the sense that whether they're in Jakarta or in, you know, Johannesburg, they share some fundamental values in a way that, for example, your mother and my mother might not have shared. They they would have had completely different cultural touch points. But Generation Z has very similar touch points. They're living online and they've got this pervasive climate crisis that's affecting them. And so that's one big driver. And then the other big driver I do believe we need some government action and regulation. I think that it is not right that so many of the industries that are causing some of these emissions are subsidized to the extent that they are. And that's causing artificial price disparity that shouldn't be there. And I also think one major thing is currently global health and the environment seem to be quite separated. And I think we're going to see a conflation there of people realizing that actually their health, their personal health, and environmental health is linked yeah. and that's going to spur action and behavior change and, and regulation change
0: so that brings us almost nicely back to some of the things we started off in terms of your journey so i just want to start to wind up by asking you first of all if you take a step back and look at across the sustainability space other than alternative protein, where do you see the sort of main emerging spaces at the moment? Or How do you see alternative protein in the context of that broader sustainability agenda?
1: Some of the trends I see coming, some are very early on, and some are a little bit more mature. But obviously, one of the big shifts in how consumers are buying is this shift in is the sharing economy, renting, reuse, Secondhand resale, right? So that's a real fundamental shift in you know the post-war Western world baby boomer dream of just stuff accumulation, right? So that's a big shift, and that's going to affect a ton of different industries. The other big shift that I see is the circular mindset, circular economy, and that term is overused and kind of messed around with. But this idea that how can we stop extracting resources that are finite? and cause waste at the end of life. And this comes back to extended producer responsibility. And it's the reason I've gotten into the world of plastic free packaging and why I'm working with my business partner on that because I think we're going to want solutions that are circular and non-extractive and renewable and non-toxic in nature. And right now that's not at all how packaging or other industries work. So there is that kind of thing. There's also in the broader circular economy, there's this idea of refill, right? And also repair. We're gonna go back to the repair mentality that we used to have right after the war when people had lived with scarcity, that's gonna come back. And then the last one I would say, and this one is very early days and affects more like the finance people is kind of this idea of degrowth, where how do we measure growth in society in a non kind of growth way? Or how do we continue to live prosperous, happy lives and have businesses that function where we're just not basing everything on GDP, which has led us to- there's other measures
0: to GDP. Yeah, other things that should be factored in external.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Absolutely. So Sonali, you're evidently an expert in this space. So I should ask you, are there any topics that I should have Talk to, to you about today that I haven't, or are there any things you think we should, you know, it's worth kind of getting out on the table before we finally wrap up?
1: <laughs> well, not really. I think all your questions were amazing, but I will add one thing that I always talk about when I go and speak to corporates and business owners, which is I talked about having a chief supply chain officer, but really, I think all companies, depending on your size, you can call it different things, but all companies are going to need a chief sustainability officer that reports directly to the founder or the CEO, not a sustainability manager that sits in their little room and does little fun Earth Day campaigns. No, sustainability is a must have. It's not a nice to have. Engaging with the climate crisis as a business is again, is a necessity. It will be essential for survival. It will affect your supply chain, who you can hire, how you hire, what your products are made out of, and so, you really need to bake that in at from the top. And I think I have to say most companies are woefully underprepared on that.
0: So Sonali, let's wrap it there. We at HSBC are really focused on, you know, what's our role in helping facilitate the transition as well and being there for our client base and and hopefully, you know, future clients in terms of helping them through this journey as well. So we've covered a vast array of stuff. So thank you, wealth of knowledge and ideas. So thank you for spending time today talking to me about uh, alternative protein and broader sustainability. Really appreciate it.
1: A real honor. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much.
1: Thank you for joining us for HSBC Talks Business. To learn more about anything you heard today, please visit business.hsbc.com.